Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Media Confidential, Prospect Magazine's weekly dose of analysis and insight into what's really happening in the media world's newsrooms and boardrooms. I'm Alan Rusbridger. And I'm Lionel Barber. On this episode, is the right-wing media out of control? The extraordinary and fast-changing relationship between Rishi Sunak's Downing Street, head of the election, and what used to be called the conservative media, but increasingly is more the right-wing media. We are seeing a very important cultural and political change going on. And if there is a mood of paranoia in Downing Street, it's not entirely unreasonable. Conservatives have never seen the right-wing media so powerful and also so hostile to their party. Can the Tories still rely on its usual media backers, or will key titles desert Rishi Sunak at the next election? Is the Reform Party really about to shake up Westminster politics? And how profound are the political implications of who takes over the Telegraph? Listen and follow us wherever you get your podcasts to make sure you never miss an episode. And follow us on X stroke Twitter. We are at MediaConfPod. So, Lionel, this is um, two weeks, three weeks running you've been in London now. You, you must be feeling almost like a native. Now I've got cabin fever. <laughs> I'm looking for my next trip. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, I've got to stick around in this uh, gloomy city for another couple of weeks. What have you been uh, monitoring? Well, very closely, uh, the American election campaign. I see Taylor Swift has now become the target of the uh, Make America Great Again Trumpists. Uh, they're worried about uh, Taylor Swift, this extraordinary star, encouraging lots of young voters to vote Democrat. Interesting uh, that she's become a subject of that campaign. So they're, they're targeting her? They are indeed. Political operatives obviously acting at the behest of uh, Donald Trump, I suspect, who's getting increasingly scratchy mainly because Nikki Haley's still in the race, defying expectations. Well, I've been um, closer to home. Uh, I was r- rather mesmerised by the bizarre libel action between Lawrence Fox and three people on Twitter. They called him a racist, uh, and he responded very unwisely by calling them pedos. And they sued him, and they've just won hands down in in the libel courts. Uh, and Lawrence Fox is, is is very miffed because he says, "How dare they call me a racist? They they can't define what racist is. Language is losing its all its meaning." And I only call them pedos because they call me a racist. Um, I mean, two, two two things. One is he has got a, I think, a rudimentary grasp of how libel works or what words mean. And the second, he recorded this sort of rather rambling um, monologue about all this in the taxi on the way home, saying this is costing an awful lot of money, but it's not costing me any money. And it turns out that he's being bankrolled by an investment manager called 
Jeremy Hosking. Perhaps you know him from your FT days. It's certainly ringing a very tiny bell, but you'll have to help me out. Well, on I that. think tiny oh. bell is probably the right word for Jeremy Hosking, except that he was one of the three biggest backers of Brexit. He's one of this club of of billionaires who who keep. Billionaires up. or multimillionaires? We well, he's 351st in the rich list, and he's, he's probably got hundreds of millions rather than billions. But um, he's got enough millions to, to bankroll Brexit, which he did at the referendum. And he's also, he, he gave a loan to, you know, you know the nutty MP, um, Bridgen. Andrew Bridgen, Mr. Quotable. He's Mr. Quotable, also a complete um, COVID vaccine denier. And he has given him a loan of nearly 4 million, I think, or under, underwritten a loan. That's a lot of money for Andrew Bridgen. A lot of money. Um, and so he's a sort of home for, well, I was going to say lost causes, except they, they won Brexit. But, it, it you know, of, of all the causes to support in the world... Lawrence Fox and his nutty opinions. And, uh, of course, it takes us back to a few months ago when these people with nutty opinions were all over GB News to be replaced by more people with nutty opinions. Well, this is true, Alan. But as you and I know, having dealt a lot with libel in our years as editor and libel lawyers, you do have to be extremely careful about words and labels. And I would suggest that the last person of true fame who used the word pedo as an attack, was Elon Musk. And he got away remember. with it, didn't he? I yeah. believe. It was in the American courts, because the American courts are different from Indeed. the British courts. Anyway, tiny violin for Lawrence Fox. I mean, tiny, microscopic. Yeah, in an orchestra of one violin, right? <laughs> Take out a digital subscription to Prospect and enjoy a one-month free trial to our digital content. You'll immediately get full access to rigorously fact-checked, truly independent analysis and perspectives. There's no commitment. You can cancel at any time. To take advantage of this offer, visit our website or go to your favorite search engine and search for, quotes, Prospect Magazine subscription, quotes. Well, Alan, it's almost certainly going to be an election year. So what the media is saying about the various parties and policies is very important, but also where the conservative media stands in relation to the present Sunak administration and whether it's changing. And you spotted a very good column by Andrew Marr uh, the other day in The New Statesman talking about this shift from conservative to hard right media. Yeah, it was a very interesting piece by uh, Andy, and he's also done it um, in the form of a a YouTube video for those um, who prefer to watch rather than read. And he's he's looking at the battle for the Telegraph. He's looking at how the Telegraph is increasingly not, if it ever was, well, actually, I think it was, the House organ of the of the Tory Party. How it's flirting with reform. Uh, He's looking at uh, GB News which I think is increasingly sort of edging towards reform in its totally impartial way. And uh, there are things like The Spectator, there are things like uh, Talk TV that we might come on to. And all in all, he's drawing a picture in which the Tories who generally come election time could rely on at least half the British press uh, to swing in behind them is now not looking 
at all that way. And of course, there's a position of Rupert Murdoch we'll, we'll come on to speak about. Well, as you'd expect, Alan, I would introduce an economic dimension to this discussion. As you have seen in the last few months, there have been some pretty serious layoffs in general in newspapers, some of the web offerings too. The papers are struggling with their subscription model, how to have another leg of growth after pretty successful moves. And this would obviously include the Telegraph to build a paid for model. People are looking at different ways, different offerings. Second, uh, what's interesting, and this pertains to the future of the Telegraph, there are some outside investors, notably this group from America, Redbird, backed by Abu Dhabi money, Sheikh money, to take the conservative Telegraph brand and build it out internationally, seeing a potential success in America. And this is also different A truly international conservative brand is not a sort of UK Tory brand. You may well need a bit of the nativist mix. One thing that intrigued me in in, uh, Andrew's piece is this question of metrics. And it's a subject I'd like us to come back to in a a future podcast. But I think what Andy is saying, uh, and we're about to discuss all this with David Aronovich, is that in, a, in an era when you can immediately see what your readers are thinking and reading and how much they're reading and what they're switching off and when they're cancelling their subscriptions, the idea that a newspaper becomes, in a sense, a prisoner to its consumers uh, is an interesting one. And um, it, it casts my mind back to the podcast that we did on Fox News, where Fox News... Uh, the moment they started criticizing Donald Trump, saw their subscribers, their viewers disappearing. That's, that's, not, that's not why we watch you. We watch you because you are a supporter of Donald Trump. And it's a sort of intri- intriguing thing where the power begins to shift to the consumer of news. Always worried me a little bit. I mean, obviously, at the Financial Times and others that followed, Guardian was obviously a standout difference. Uh, the paid-for model required you to really know who your readers were. You wanted them to uh, resubscribe, and you found you knew lots and lots uh, about them. And our metrics was, were about engagement, so it's not just clicks, but how lo- how much time you were spending. But I never wanted that to become or to get into a situation where you would you were literally, as you say, prisoners to that audience. I saw the job as one, providing serendipity, not just a narrow offering. And second, uh, you almost had a duty to come up with ideas, journalism, which would challenge the reader rather than just reinforce their basic uh, interests and prejudices. Yeah, I always remember Tina Brown's phrase, you have to bite the hand that reads you. Uh, i.e. if you just give them what they're interested in, it it can make for quite a dull uh, magazine or or newspaper or TV station. So you have to be provocative. It's just an interesting trend, and it'll be interesting to see what David Ronovich makes of that thesis. So we're very pleased to be joined now by David Aronovich, former Times columnist. Uh, we'll give a plug for his substack at the end of this program, uh, but who's been monitoring uh, the, the right and the press for a long time. And I suppose my first question, David, you've, you've read this piece by Andrew Marr. Do you agree that something 
new is stirring in the undergrowth, that, that the picture that he's describing is changing. Yeah, I think it, it is really very interesting. I mean, what he's describing essentially is a kind of exploded Fox News. Uh, in other words, there's kind of the different bits of Fox News are kind of separated in different media outlets across the kind of the UK firmament from the Telegraph to GB News with maybe Talk TV stuck in there and the Mail and so on. And in that, what he's describing is a, a kind of combination of interest and ideological position, which may or may not coincide with a need to support the Conservative Party at an election. That's essentially what he's describing. In other words, this constellation is now kind of floating free of its total association with Conservative Party interests. Now, the first thing, obviously, that both of you will recognise is that a lot of this happened also in 1997, actually. In 1997, the Sun famously said that it was backing Blair because they could see he was going to win so they did but also there was within the kind of commentary of some of the conservative papers a degree of hostility if not hostility ambivalence towards john major as being an ineffective successor to the sainted margaret thatcher in other words he was not really uh, worthy of her and that the conservative party would never really kind of retain the place that it needed to and that they wanted it to until this moment had been lost and, and and essentially the party brought back to its Thatcherite self. And I found myself on programmes before and just after the 1997 elections with sort of, you know, big hitters like Simon Heffer, etc., who were incredibly unpleasant about the Conservative Party and frankly slightly delighted that Labour was going to get in because only under this basis could you kind of get back to the business of the Conservative Party becoming itself again. And so there's an element of that, which is, if you like, a kind of retread of that. And then there's the bit that Andrew talks about, which may be regarded as newer, which has something to do with the way in which newspapers and uh, these new 24-hour news outlets operate. The only question that arose in my mind, really, uh, at the end of it was, I could see its capacity to inform that relatively small number of people who are the electorate within the Conservative Party for leadership. What I'm not at all clear about is that this constellation has anything like the influence that it would have had back in the mid-90s. David, yes, I agree. On 97, there was also a certain personal animus towards Major, a slight snootiness that he wasn't uh, Eton, Balliol, Oxford and Downing Street. But I'd like to go back to ideology and to ask you, if you think about it, Britain often imports um, political trends, media trends from America. We all know about the Reagan tax-cutting revolution, the Reagan-Thatcher liberalisation, deregulation of the 80s, which you alluded to. But now, can we see the influence of the alt-right, the Trumpist tendency in conservative media in Britain? The short answer is that you can see it all over the place. The second element of this is to ask ourselves how powerful it actually is and what kind of appeal it has. Uh, and I suppose at this point, we ought to kind of recognise that what's being played for now is not what happens before the next election. I mean, I think we've all cottoned on for some time now that what's being done here is essentially the planning for the conservative succession at which point, when a major political party, as happened to Labour with uh, Corbyn, actually, when a major political party is captured, 
democratically, usually by by vote of its members, but nevertheless captured by a particular wing, then in that case, it can that wing can expect far more support from the general run of supporters of that party than they would ever have got otherwise. And that is the preparation which is going on. So Andrew in his piece talks about, if you like, the kind of the Braverman uh, succession, which supposedly happens after the next election. According to Nadine Doris, anyway, it's all a plot to get Kemi Badenoch to be leader after the uh, Tory defeat at the next election. As far as I can tell, a plot that goes back to even before Kemi Badenoch was born. So it's really deep state stuff, uh, at this. Um, obviously, it's problematic in the first place because we're just simply not America. Uh, and the ways in which Britain is not America are quite significant. The second thing is that there's an awful lot riding for them on the culture wars. And as we've seen from Ron DeSantis's campaign, even in the States, the culture wars, which are fought at a kind of level and ferocity and a stupidity that we don't usually manage to get to, you know, unless you talk about a few people standing outside a drag queen storytelling in Burnt Oak or somewhere, it hasn't got the same kind of pull over here. So again, you push yourself back into the conditions of a new Labour government coming in and finding itself in a very difficult series of economic positions, finding it very, very difficult to improve the lot of the British people in any kind of significant way early on. And that that point being very potentially vulnerable to a big movement from the populist right that essentially says, here are some solutions to creating better conditions for our people that haven't been tried yet and so on, rather than the tired duopoly of the old Conservatives uh, as they were and Labour as it is now. And there are people who prepare themselves for taking this position. I mean, you know, there's a kind of bevy of small Conservative groups, as you know now, which have kind of been created since that National Conservatives uh, conference. We have the new Conservatives, who essentially are the National Conservatives. They were the people who were there, but they call themselves the New Conservatives. Economically, supposedly more kind of dirigiste, more corporatist. There's a fancy for that amongst uh, some writers on the right. There's the popular Conservatives, the so-called Popcons. There's this body that seems to be funding Lord Frost's endeavours. And this is really where Andrew Marr had his takeoff point, wasn't it? With that huge poll on the the front page... Huge poll on the front page of the Telegraph, and immediately underneath it, a big interpretation by Lord David Frost, the never-elected uh, leader-in-waiting, or actually, he's more kind of Warwick Kingmaker, isn't he, really? I mean, he's kind of... Sort of second-class Cardinal Richelieu. Yeah, exactly. That's what he is. I kind of like to think of him sort of, you know, hopping from weak Lancastrian to poor Yorkist, etc., in a desperate attempt to try and control the future of England and so on, and never kind of quite getting there, except Lord Frost doesn't even have quite the kind of, you know, battleground gravitas. I mean, as far as I know, Frost has never even fought an election. His rise is really rather kind of extraordinary. But there it is, front page of the Telegraph. So they've given it, so essentially the Telegraph gave itself over at this moment to a poll and an interpretation of a poll that essentially said uh, this prime minister is absolutely useless and it's not until we get back to the real verities of the Tory party, whatever those are, because actually they're not agreed upon. And given that actually Sunak can't possibly be the person who they are demanding... This can only be dealt with by a leadership change. And given that a leadership change isn't going to happen this side of an election, again, we go back to it. We're really talking about what happens on the other side. There were three groups of uh, media figures um, 
in Andrew Marr's piece. There was a, a sort of previous generation, let's call them the Hartwell group, after <laughs> Lord Hartwell, who used to own the Daily Telegraph, who owned the Telegraph maybe for social status, for, for access and to make money, um, but was not really interested in, in power plays within, the, within conservatism. Then there's the sort of Dacre group uh, of, of newspaper technicians who uh, are much more ideological, but also technocrats. They're very good at putting together newspapers, and they've spread out through Fleet Street. So you've got Ben Taylor at the Sunday uh, Times. You've got Tony Gallagher at the Times, Chris Evans at the Telegraph. They're a, a kind of new breed of newspapermen who don't like mixing with politicians uh, and don't, don't particularly like politicians. Um, mm. And then you've got the new ideologues, and I think of people like Paul Marshall, who who's one of the bidders to own the Telegraph, and, and David Frost, and the, these people who who see themselves as the kingmakers. If you if you look at those last two groups, do you think that analysis is right? There's a sort of mixture of the Taker clan and these people who really want to own newspapers. Yeah, I, I mean, I think, there, I think there's clearly some truth in it, although the idea that Tony Gallagher, working as he does for News UK, is an entirely and totally independent figure who goes uninfluenced by what goes on around him is an interesting one. And I can't claim with certainty to contradict it, but it certainly isn't borne out by recent history. But with Rupert, you know, kind of trending towards his centenary, etc., and having taken his... Uh, and since, actually, he was the one of the Murdochs who used to come round to newsrooms, etc., and pop in from time to time, rather alarmingly, then in that case, it may well be that somebody like uh, Gallagher or uh, Taylor are, given, are, are completely uh, given their ideological, ideological heads. It, I mean, you can't really argue that Kelvin McKenzie of The Sun prior to 1997 uh, and his famous bucket of orger that he poured over the head of John Major was kind of being clubbable really. So there have been more and less club. I mean, the Telegraph has been famous for its clubability. But one of the things I think that you, you notice with this kind of ideological shift is that even the kind of old-fashioned Tories like that, there are exceptions, are quite capable of making this ideological switch towards Trumpism at a kind of strange point of identification, really. It's, uh, in other words, you find them agreeing with things. It's like Boris Johnson endorsing Trump. You find them effectively agreeing with things. They violently disagree agree with just a, two or three years ago uh, in order to kind of carve out a, a position for themselves. And so I, I don't know so much about the kind of old school tie versus the, you know, lean, uh, hungry, Cassius type newspaper editors. But I do see the Dacreism. I mean, but the Dacreism crept in some time ago. I've just written a piece for the British Journalism Review about writing for Substack and what's different. And I realised that one of the things that happened to me during my time as a columnist on the Times was that Dacreism in terms of editorial intervention, indirect, had become a really significant factor over the course of, you know, kind of the last eight or nine years, which hadn't been in any of my previous relationships with newspaper editors, including you, Alan, you know, because there'd been a kind of different attitude towards commissioning and to laissez-faire. I just want to say something about Paul Marshall, however, since Andrew, Andrew Marr raised it, and if you like what you might call the kind of the billionaire intervention, which ranges from Musk at X, to Marshall at GB News to whoever I can't I can't remember off the top of my head the name of his partner at GB News and so on is also a, a hedge fund Legatum uh, yeah the guy behind Legatum yeah, yeah. etc and also Marshall does unheard and and, and Andrew said um, the thing about Paul Marshall is he really believes in pluralism no he doesn't. 
I mean, I, with, with great respect, he's not putting his money into Navarra media. His pluralism is only on one side of the political spectrum. But what he means by pluralism is giving people on the right wing from the kind of vaguely sensible to the utterly bonkers a platform on which to kind of express themselves. That's what his pluralism actually means. However reasonable it is that he presents himself. So he is highly ideological even if people kind of quite like him personally. This is Media Confidential, and coming up, more on the disintegrating relationship between the UK's right-wing media and the Conservative Party, and why that could have huge impacts on the country. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Over on the Prospect podcast, a debate is raging. Next month sees the release of a new film called Argyle. And the rumour mill has been working overtime with TikTok sleuths convinced that the author of the novel... Ellie Conway is a pseudonym for Taylor Swift. Prospect Magazine's Ellen Halliday, Sarah Collins and Pete Hoskin examine the evidence. I noticed a video, um, Sarah probably might know the name of the actual TikToker. The original TikTok is Jessie Swift Talk. Basically, someone put out the TikTok video um, that said, is the author of this book a woman called Ellie Conway, um, who we kind of already know is a pseudonym. We know it's a pseudonym because we've sort of been told, but also um, because the backstory given to Ellie Conway is just too generic in an exciting way. It says she's meant to have come from uptown New York and have waitressed and have written the book in between waitressing shifts. You know, it's it's just too stereotypical. So the speculation on this TikTok video was, is it actually Taylor Swift? And I must admit, this is where I did get excited. It's a really persuasive I, video. I was hooked. When, when Sarah told me about the piece, I also went and found one of the TikToks. I don't know if it was the definitive one, but I was sold on the idea, to be yeah. honest. To find out the truth behind the Taylor Swift rumours, follow and subscribe to The Prospect Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. This is Media Confidential with Alan Rusbiger and Lionel Barber. And we're discussing whether the UK's right-wing media is out of control out of Conservative Party control, to be more precise, and how that impacts our politics ahead of what looks likely to be an extremely consequential general election at some point in the next 12 months. Our guest today is David Aronovich. He's a former Times columnist. He's presenter of BBC Radio 4's Briefing Room. He's the author of Voodoo Histories, and he's now on Substack with notes from the underground at davidaronovich.com. 
www.substack.com. David, it's time to talk about the tabloids. Uh, <laughs> two particular newspapers, The Sun and The Daily Mail. Sun, as you said, under Kelvin McKenzie, uh, famously proclaimed that it, it was they that won the election in 92. But actually, it's been in steady decline since then. I wonder how you would fit the sun into in, in, in a debate, or has it become somewhat peripheral? And then the mail, which does seem still to pack a punch, even post-Dacre. And of course, they seem to be keen to buy the Telegraph. And so I'd be interested in what you think about the, what that would mean about the concentration of media power. It would simplify all our lives if they bought the Telegraph in many ways, uh, because then it will be kind of in one place, like News UK is all in kind of one place, and then we could analyse them in the same kind of a way. Um, I cannot see what is important about the sun now. I don't know what is supposed to be important about it. I don't mean it has no influence at all upon a certain section of the population, but it's probable that quite a significant proportion of its still existing readers, and there are so many fewer of them than there once were, don't read the paper for the politics at all. Consequently, I mean, we never had to have this conversation about the mirror because we know that the mirror isn't that important uh, and so on um, in, in terms of its actual influence. I don't mean that what it says should be disregarded as, as, as anybody else should be disregarded. The thing is, I think the thing that I've come to realise really, you probably both absolutely understood this before being editors yourselves and therefore looking at the figures, is that essentially, with the exception of the BBC, we are a nation of niches. What we tend all have to do these days to uh, do well is to maximise the impact within our bit of the niche market. It's incredibly difficult to uh, appeal to other bits and other niches within the market. So that's usually what's happening. So the mail is probably the most successful in kind of maintaining a sizable niche. I don't think, I, as far as I can see, the sun isn't particularly... And, and one of the reasons the mail is successful at the moment, of course, is mail online rather than the uh, newspaper itself. And then you have businesses like GB News and Talk TV who have actually pretty low audiences. They're also kind of niche, but they then kind of push very slightly beyond them in terms of the national conversation when it comes to their online presence. So more people see them really in little bits and gobbits than actually take them in in any kind of significant way. And so I would still be inclined to think that the two ways in which something like the male influences the debate is firstly directly because conservative members buy it as they do the telegraph. Uh, and secondly, because organizations like the BBC to a certain extent overrate how important the male is because of the way in which it turns up in their, uh, in their algorithms and so on. One of the things I've just, again, in this British Journalism Review that I'm about Substack is when you write for Substack, the metrics you get back from it are absolutely staggering. This is just a kind of personal level. You know, who does what, when, who reacts to what, with what kind of speed, who's active, who's not active, number of active uh, viewers, not active viewers, and so on. And I think until we kind of, we have oversight of these kind of metrics and can see what's really going on, it's sometimes quite difficult to make a judgment about who's influencing what exactly. I was going to ask you about that, David, because we've talked a bit about the influence from above. But in a sense, the influence from below is equally interesting in a day in the age when editors can now absolutely see when their readers are switching on or switching off. We saw it with Fox News 
the moment they stopped backing Trump or questioning Trump, the, the, the view was just deserted. So I suppose the question is, to what extent, if you've got voters who are deserting the Tories for reform, the extent to which Tory newspaper editor can resist that? Yes, I don't... I. Uh, this is an interesting question because all that is dependent upon whether Nigel Farage goes back into politics because otherwise my own prejudice is that reform is not going to be any kind of really significant factor except that insofar as it siphons off a couple of percentage points from the Tories uh, on the part of voters who probably otherwise wouldn't have voted at all. I can't see a situation whereby, but maybe I'm lacking in imagination, and Andrew Marr didn't go this far, as a situation where the Telegraph comes out at the next election and says, vote reform. I don't think probably still that's where they think the majority of their readers are. And I don't think it's where where they are. I mean, I have to say there are some kind of contradictions here. I mean, when I was given my cards last year, it was already the, I was one of the relatively few sort of Labour leaning columnists in the paper. Now they're almost all Conservatives of one stripe or another. On the Times. On the Times. And this despite the, the fact that the figures showed that up to 70% of Times readers were not going to support the Conservatives at the next election. In other words, whatever the reason was, and it may be that was just too expensive, that's quite possible. But I bet you were. <laughs> and maybe we've just become very boring, and that's also quite possible. No, that's not um, true. Um, but anyway, I angle for that one. I got it. So I'm, I'm happy there. Uh, um <laughs> But anyway, that was the that was the decision. It left them bereft of very many people actually facing taught writing in a way that I knew a majority of and certainly a plurality of readers were wanting. Now, was I to understand this to be ideological or was I to understand this to be, you know, purely administrative? Well, the fact that the editor never spoke to me meant that I never found out and never had an opportunity to discover. Anyway, that's got that off my chest. But in other words, there seem to be several things kind of going on at the same time. Uh, then Andrew tells us that there was a lunch between the Starmer team and uh, Gallagher et al. the other week. I would imagine Keir Starmer went to that lunch with a very, very long spoon indeed. And he could afford to have actually a very long spoon indeed. What's going to be much, much more important is maintaining the objectivity and journalistic integrity of the BBC, which is by far and away the biggest journalistic enterprise in, in Britain uh, and so on, and also of ITN and also to a certain extent of Sky News. Which is why the the government is beating up and bullying the BBC so much uh, <laughs> right now, it seems to me, at least softening them up ahead of the election. Just a quick question on media consolidation. Do you buy this story that Rupert Murdoch might be keen to buy back Sky News from Comcast, which has admittedly written down its value. And then you think about Talk TV, that was an experiment which is clearly loss-making. Might there be a big consolidation coming it, up? It would certainly make sense if there were. Some of these things can work on relatively small numbers if you work those people, if they're keen enough on you. That's the Fox News experience, etc. It can't grow and grow and grow and grow, but you can do well enough out of it, I would say. I don't know what your opinion about that is, but you can actually kind of, you can make it last and you can do well enough out of it and you can have some kind of fun with it. What you're not going to do is run countries off the back of it, uh, really. Those kind of, I think those days are probably over. And, and that is rather worrying as well, because actually instead of, you know, kind of the 
big finger of Kelvin McKenzie and Rupert Murdoch hanging over. At least you could see where the finger was. Now, everything is so disparate and exploded, increasingly exploded, that it's very, very difficult to see where any kind of significant power lies. You see people edging towards bits of power and kind of wanting it, but you can't claim that somehow makes an absolutely critical difference to what happens. I mean, I don't know whether you agree with that, but the monoliths of the past are broken. Uh, The media monoliths of the past are broken. And what we have is an incredible mosaic of people in the field. Yeah, the fragmentation of modern media is definitely... Uh, here to stay. I want to come back to this question of control and the right-wing media out of control. I mean, partly this is because we're at the fag end of a government, 13 long years of conservative rule. But it is partly this ideological shift that you've described, isn't it? Where do you think the government will stand regarding the media in the run-up to this campaign? Who will they care about? How will they try and get back in the tent? It's weasels in a sack time, isn't it, really? I mean, what you're watching there is them kind of taking lumps out of each other as they attempt to discover a winning strategy with the certain knowledge, and we all have this certain knowledge, that the only thing that they have is immigration. In the end, every single one of their kind of radical approaches to this, that or the other, all their alternatives, will come down to making as much of the election about immigration as they possibly can, because there is nothing else for them to do. And in that, the government will concur with the right wing, with the with the right wing section of the press and, you know, the shock jocks on GB News and Talk TV. I think that's what it's going to be. And when the election is not about immigration and after it's lost, then the real battle begins. And for us, the question of how best Britain recovers, because you put your finger, I think, on it, which is we've had a kind of detachment of people from their traditional political loyalties, partly because that's a natural process, but also partly because ever since 2008, we have been undergoing a slow and steady decline, decline in public services, a decline in civility, a decline and so on. Certain things we haven't been declining. I shouldn't exaggerate. I was listening to a very interesting program about where crime statistics actually were at the moment. And, you know, we're not all banging, knocking each other over the head and murdering each other, etc. So this is a kind of, this isn't happening. Um, but nevertheless, there is a kind of very significant feeling of malaise. And if we just take the obvious example of the way in which young people and it's clear from all the polling, genuinely do feel left out from the settlement, uh, from the political economic settlement and so on. I think you can say that unless something is done which feels like it addresses that and they feel it's addressed, then in the next four or five years, some of these kind of factors that we're talking about could become much more significant. Let the battle commence. Thank you so much, David, for joining us on Media Confidential. You're very welcome. Well, Alan, listening to David uh, Aronovich there, it's all done and dusted. Conservatives heading for a vast, humiliating defeat, Labour coming back. And actually, it's all about the future of the Conservative Party after the election. That's very much how it feels, that people have priced in the result of the, the coming election. And they know there's going to be a vast ideological battle for what is left of the Conservative Party. Uh, and how it's going to be rebuilt and in whose mould. And 
I think that's certainly at the heart of some of these people who are jostling for position in the right-wing media, the, that position that Andrew Marr describes. David really thinks even if Farage joins Reform UK, comes back into politics, he doesn't think that they're going to come up with a substantial showing in the next election and that this opinion poll that was showing them in the late teens, maybe even catching up with the Conservative Party, that's not going to happen either. Well, very dependent on, on Farage. I, I think the polling we had from Peter Kellner in, the, in Prospect showed actually it could be as much of a 10% swing, depending on, on whether Farage is in or, or not. We didn't really get onto this with David, but I, I think Labour is in a slightly ticklish position here uh, because uh, Labour is uh, or was committed to Leveson 2. That's the bit of Leveson inquiry that got scrapped. Uh, and if not actually reinstating the Leveson inquiry, there's this arcane little bit of legislation, this so-called Section 40, which was needed in order to create a Leveson-approved regulator. Now, the, the Tory party has, has, has promised to reveal this. I think 100% of the national press wants this repealed. Uh, and yet there's quite a lot of pressure from within Labour to say, no, no, we shouldn't repeal it and uh, we should keep the pressure on to have a different kind of regulator for the press. That's a tricky one for, for Starmer because I'm sure when he went for his pre-Christmas lunch uh, with the Sun, it would have been uh, strongly implied that Murdoch's support for uh, Starmer could be dependent on the, the attitude he takes towards this. Well, you and I may disagree on this, but I think reopening Leveson 2, which is the criminal part of the inquiry, uh, linked obviously to a future regulator, would be onerous. No, I think, um, I think that, that horse has bolted. That horse has bolted. But then you could, the question of regulator, I mean, the issue here is, do you want, as a future prime minister, to declare war on the major newspapers and news organisations in this country when you've got, as David again correctly said, a huge challenge in restoring a decent level of growth, jobs and prosperity to this post-Brexit country. I think it's the last thing that Starmer would want. I'm just saying that I'm, I'm the, the, the whispers I'm picking up from within Labour is there's, there's quite a significant head of steam from people who've been beaten up by the British press, you know, I mean, they're, 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 it's not like Labour's got it's many a friends in the press. distinguished group. I mean, it includes you, includes me. I have my two <laughs> pages in the Daily Mail back so, in 2016. You were quite. You're the you're the, uh, the uh, enemy of the people. Uh, we are in in some minds, but um, no. But but I, I just think the serious point is that Labour has got a problem. Or Starmer has got a problem with with his peers as well as his MPs. Well, I'm going to give some free advice to Keir Starmer. Just focus on the regulator, Ofcom. Make sure it does its job policing the likes of GB News and use the institutions that you have at your disposal uh, before opening a new front on the media. Amen to that. If you've got any questions for us about the media, email them to Media Confidential, all one word, at Prospect Magazine, also alloneword.co.uk, and we'll answer a few of them in a future episode. Thank you for listening to Media Confidential, brought to you by Prospect Magazine and Fresh Air. 
The producer is Danny Garlick. Remember to listen and follow us wherever you get your podcasts. And we're on Twitter slash X2 at MediaConfPod. More invaluable media industry analysis will be coming your way next Thursday. Join us then. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.